I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. This isn't supposed to happen this way. I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I know I had nothing to do with this. How is this possible? I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode is a very special one. My friend Pete Uko is here all the way from Kenya, where he was sentenced to death, even though a jury unanimously found him innocent. Pete, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for hosting me, Jason. First time in America, right? Yeah, first time in America, cut still Jason Flom. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're happy you're here. Your story is uh, remarkable in so many ways. Of course, the craziest part of all is the fact that you were found innocent by a jury unanimously, and then the judge overruled the jury and sentenced you to death. Obviously, they didn't succeed in killing you because you're here, and I'm very happy about that. So <laughs> you're sort of immortal. Um, and then 18 years in prison later, and now this story is just its phenomenal. But let's start at the beginning. So you were born in Kenya? Yeah, I was born in Kenya 48 years ago. Uh -huh. A big family of 12. My mom had nine girls and three boys. Wow, which one were you? I'm number eight, back down in the line. Number eight, okay. And the same parents for all 12 kids? Yeah. Amazing. 
that's how it happens in Africa sometimes. <laughs> uh, and what and what about your uh, parents? What did they do? Oh, my dad passed on in 1997, just a year before I went to prison. And my mom is still alive. She's a retired teacher. She stays up country, does farming. We're just aging gracefully. Uh huh. So, yeah. and what was your dad doing before he died? My dad was a lecturer. He was a civil servant. Uh huh. Both my parents actually were teachers. My mom taught me grade one to three. So you grew up in this big, happy family? Yeah. And when, it was in the city or? No, I grew up, half of our siblings grew up in the city with my dad, who my dad was working in Nairobi. And me and the others grew up up country. Mom said she wanted to keep at least one of the sons up country because she didn't want the town influence to mess up her son. Then she picked on me. I don't mm. know why. You went to school and graduated. Well, how, do, how did the education start? And then we'll yeah, get into I, I went to primary school from class one to seven. I emerged as the best, one of the best in the country in uh, 1982 exams, primary school exams. Then I was admitted to Alliance High School, which is one of the top schools in the country, where I did my O-levels. After that, I went for my A-levels to another school. And uh, straight from school, my mom wanted me to go study in India. I didn't want to go study in India. So I went straight to business. I was employed by Bata Shoe Company as a shop manager at 19 years, just before I turned 20. And you got married young? Yeah, I was 22 and uh, my late wife was 18. Is that sort of typical in Kenya? People get married in their teens, early 20s? No, in some instances it is. Now it's changed. But for me, I felt that uh, getting married at that age would help me cool down. I led a pretty wide life and I was just living the life. So I wanted, I mean, I just say that the girl who'd get my baby, I'd just marry her straight. So when she told me she was expecting my baby, I said, fine, we make it happen. And you did. And we did. And you did. And you had two kids. And then one night, everything went horribly wrong um, in a way that is uh, almost unimaginable. So your wife was raped and murdered in handcuffs in front of the police station. Um, And this is one of the things about this story that just absolutely boggles the mind of everyone who hears it. But the fact is, this is what happened. So... First of all, how did this unwind, that fateful night? Like, what were you doing? Where was she? What were the circumstances? How did this go so horribly wrong? I mean, just like you've said, many people, when they hear my story and they see the mood I am in, they think it's, you know, they don't believe what it is. But here, on the 18th evening of December 1998, the story is, I was told my wife left work to come home. And uh, she didn't come home. At that time, I was with my friend Willie. I was with Willie's family, his late brother John. And we did dinner. Then Willie dropped me home later. Jennifer was supposedly leaving her work at 9 p.m., just, I think, around 9 p.m., according to the evidence I saw in court. And then when she didn't come home, me arrived home, I think, 11, when uh, Willie dropped me. And I didn't find a home. Back then, we didn't have mobile phones in Kenya. We didn't have easy communication, so you had to rely on the landlines. So I waited patiently. I didn't see her. I was like, it's not normal for her not to come home, but I don't know where to go start searching. So I just assumed maybe she could have gone to her cousin or a friend or relative. And yet I had this nagging feeling that something was wrong, but I didn't know just what to do about it. And she was working in a salon? Yeah, she was working in a salon. And uh, she had a late client that night who was having a wedding the next day. These are things that came out in evidence when we were in court. So the the client came in just before Jenny was to leave work, and she kept Jenny until 9 o'clock. And then she left Jenny in the salon. Right, and that turns out to be an important detail later on, but go ahead. Yeah, so the next day on 19th, 
We woke up in the morning. I didn't see Jenny in the house. I didn't find Jenny. So I woke up very early, called the office, her workplace. The phone wasn't ringing. And then I went to my office. It was just not so far from where her office was. Made another call, a second call, because I was now getting agitated. Where could she be? She didn't tell me. I didn't have any information about if she was supposed to go out anywhere. And uh, I remember it was a Friday. So the next thing I did was I called again at around 9.30. And then the lady on the other hand picked uh, in the salon and told me, hey, Pete, we're sorry, but uh, Jenny has been found murdered. And I just went blank. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know how to react to it. I couldn't even cry because I just didn't know. It just hit me. I was I was 28 and Jenny was 24 and we had these small kids and it just hit me like a thunderstorm. I just got flamox and just stopped for a minute. And then I had to recollect myself very fast because for one, I knew I'd left my kids in the house with the house help and my sister-in-law also was staying with us. And I, I just didn't know how to face it. I, I just lost my dad a couple of months before and Jenny was closest to me at that moment and I mean, she was a darling to my mom, very close to my mom. And she helped mom go through that grieving moment. And now here she was. So I didn't know how I was going to face it, uh, tell my mom, tell my kids. I just didn't know how to handle that moment. So the first thing I did, because I asked her, where has it happened? Then she told me the body's been found right outside the fence of the police station. So I just carried my guts and asked myself, how can something like that happen outside a police station? And I know the police station is heavily guarded. Just, I just want to understand. So the police station, it wasn't like an outpost. It was like a proper police station a proper with like police a, station with lights. With and yeah. It's a big compound because the police lines are there. The police stay there. Are they very rare? And then the offices are in the front. So it's a reasonably big, no, three acres, let me say. And it's a reasonably big compound. And so the body was found on the outside just behind the police lines. We call them the police lines. The police quarters are called police lines in Kenya. So the body was just found outside the fence there. So when she told me that, I couldn't understand how. Because I knew that even on the other end, the police quarters are guarded from back and front. If somebody was going to take somebody and murder them, yeah. the last place they would take them is to the police station. And that's, that's, that, that's what's hard to believe about this matter. Because initially you're like, how could that happen? I mean, anyone would have said this guy would fear being caught somewhere here. And one of the things I'd seen in Kenya was that if someone raped a lady, he'd take off if the lady didn't know that person. But if that lady got killed in the process of rape, it was out of fear that that person would be identified. And then it happened right outside the police station. The post-mortem report came that the rigor mortis set in when the, her hand was handcuffed. That was the report of the chief government pathologist at that time. And it's the very handcuffs that were used to strangle her on the neck. So these are reports that I got to find later. But at the initial stage... I went to the police station. I found my in-laws, who apparently hadn't approved of our marriage before because they felt I'd taken out their young girl before. They had a, a chance to be with her long enough, maybe. My mother-in-law was very supportive. My father-in-law just didn't like me. He just didn't want that. But fast forward to that evening, I reach there. I find some of uh, my late wife's relatives, Jenny's relatives there. Then they tell the cops, lock this guy in. As simple as that. I go to the police station. No one gives me an apology. No one tells me Pete, sorry or anything. The next thing I hear, come into this room. I get into the police uh, room. I'm told to strip off. I don't know why I'm being told to strip off. I strip off. They do body search. Then I just hear someone say out there, lock this guy in. What time of day was this? 
That was around 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. So this is now about 12 hours since the murder occurred. Yeah. So you show up there, the other relatives are there, and they see you being taken into the police station. They're the ones who say that I should be locked in. Because they didn't like you. Because they didn't like me. That's where it all started. It was about settling scores, like we didn't like this guy, so maybe let us keep him somewhere. But they didn't know the ramifications. Just to make it clear, they later came on to prison and apologized to me. But it was too late because I'd already been convicted. They knew from the beginning that Jennifer was murdered in handcuffs, uh, raped and murdered in handcuffs, strangled with the handcuffs. Where would you have gotten handcuffs from? That's a big question. You know, the handcuff issue came at the post-mortem stage when the autopsy was being conducted. But when the body was found there, it was, as I said, the rigor mortis set in when the hands were up here in a defensive position. And they had taken the handcuffs off by now. Yeah, I think, yeah, now I think they'd taken the handcuffs off because she had scratch marks around her wrists and on her neck. Hmm. So the larynx was broken by whatever it was. What a nightmare. And so, so they take you into the police station. First, they make you strip. Obviously, they were trying to see if you had some some scratch Maybe, marks, yeah. some, because obviously she fought, right? Yeah. Jenny, Jenny couldn't have let anyone do that to her without a fight. Of course not, yeah. I mean, especially a young mom, but anybody. Exactly. Um, so you had no scars, no scratches? Nothing. Right. And then they start asking you questions? How does it work? No over? question. I was, just told, I was just put in. I wasn't asked a single question. I wasn't told anything. The moment I was told, put this guy in, I was thrown in for two weeks without talking to anyone. The law said that I should be taken to court after 14 days. But I was kept there for another 14 days and then two more days, which was one month. And can you describe that? That's a jail, right? That's not a prison that you were in. No, that's police custody. It's just in the police custody. I was illegally detained for 30 days. And can you describe what that was like? The, The police jail cells are like 10 by 10 feet, four for men and two for ladies on the other side. So they're a total of six. But then... um. It's a place where they bring in every kind of person. The place where my late wife was found murdered was uh, in a densely populated eastland side of Nairobi. So they arrest drunks every other day. The cells are always full. There are no blankets. There are no beddings. There's no nothing. I mean, you, you are there with drunks. You're there with all kinds of people brought in every day. And then they have to go to court and you're just kept there. You don't know why you're being kept there. No one is telling you anything. You get your newspapers. You read like everything is going on normally, but there's no communication. And they bring the food into the cell? I didn't take any food there. My secretary used to bring me food because at that time I'd started, uh, I'd started my own business. And so I got food from home. I didn't want to take any food because I didn't trust anyone at that time. Well, that's very smart, actually, because considering that the conspiracy was pretty clear from the beginning, yeah. you were the convenient scapegoat. And they had to get somebody because they weren't going to arrest one of their own. Yeah, at that time we didn't even know it was one of their own, but we had strong suspicions that someone was hiding something there. I mean, I had a very a very good lawyer. George came and took that matter as if it was his own. It's like he was fighting his own life. George is the lawyer, right? Yeah, George is my lawyer. Okay. It's, it's confusing to me sometimes, George and judge, but <laughs> George is your lawyer and the judge is the judge, and two yeah. very different characters exactly. because George was an honest guy and the judge was corrupt. Yeah, sure. He asked for everything that was needed. They kept stalling him for a full month, and they told him, we have nothing against this guy. Then he was asking, why aren't you releasing me if you have nothing against him? So I think after a month, I had to write a letter to the police commissioner and to the attorney general of the country. 
because I'd noticed a pattern of cover-ups and pattern of travesty of justice. And also the police who were there, because I'd stayed so long, I became like the local there. Now they started telling me stuff. Right, because everybody else is in and out. They're drunk, yeah. they go home the next day, and you're still the stuff yeah, there, there, you know. I became a permanent feature there. And they didn't know where I was being held. Mind you, by that time, no evidence. Nobody had written any statement about me or against me. Nothing, there was nothing. The file was empty. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So you had an empty file, 30 days go by, because you weren't actually formally charged for four months, right? No, I, I after 30 days, when I wrote the letter, I wrote an official letter now of complaint to the attorney general and uh, to the police commissioner, and I was very blunt in it. I said, I don't understand why I'm in uh, police custody. I'm supposed to be mourning my wife. I'm supposed to be finding out what happened to my wife. And taking care of your children. Yeah, and taking care of my children. But someone has turned it into a circus. And they're using that opportunity to make up stuff and to cover up everything. So I said, for heaven's sake, take me to court. If you feel you have anything against me, I'm the one who has to take me to court. And when they got that, because it was published in the media... They felt that I'd really got into them. I mean, back then, the criminal justice system was very rotten. You're not supposed to question the police. You're not supposed to question anybody. And so they said, okay, you've reported us to our bosses, so now let's get down to it. So I was taken to court after a month on the 31st day. There was nothing, so I was told go back to remand prison. At the remand prison, I waited for two weeks. I was taken back again to the police station because I couldn't be kept in remand custody without a file, without any evidence. I couldn't prepare for anything. There was nothing on me. And so I went back to the police station. They kept me again for another 30 days. Then they charged me after 60 days. By the time they were charging me, they didn't have a single evidence or any statement. So the first statement was written four months after my arrest in April because I have all the statements, we have all the dates, so we could see when that thing was written. 
Right, right, right. That's the number I had in my head was the four months because that's when the only quote-unquote witness who wasn't even really a witness and certainly wasn't a witness of the murder but this guy all of a sudden comes out and remembers details and we see this again and again in, in frame-ups, right? Where suddenly you have somebody have a miraculous recollection of something that happened weeks or months or years ago that they couldn't remember when they were initially questioned and that's what happened here. They they had a, obviously somebody went and spoke to this guy and told him what to remember. Yeah, and I, I and I think God, like I think you can try to hide some things, but you can't hide everything. And this guy, when he came to court, he was very frank and candid. And in his statements, he says he only wrote that statement after he was approached by the police to go to the police station and write it. He had nothing. He was told now come and do this, and that's why his statement was so disjointed. He had two statements. He wrote the first statement. He wrote the second statement, which contradicts the first statement. Luckily or unluckily, they gave me both statements. So we just used those two statements to discredit his evidence. They were not adding up. Okay, so what did he even say that he saw? He said he saw someone come to pick Jennifer from work at 8, then they left at 9. Now, that person was supposed to be me. And me, I was somewhere else with Willie and Linda and Joan and the family. Right. So you had an alibi, and it was a good alibi because these weren't even family members of yours. These they were weren't family members, right. and my alibi stood. By the way, that's the other absurd thing about my case. My alibi was accepted, and yet I was still convicted. Okay. It's getting weirder and weirder. But how long did it take from this point to actually get to trial? Uh, we went to trial in July because George, my lawyer, was very insistent that we had to get that thing cracking. He didn't see a reason why I was supposed to be in prison for something I didn't do. And George, incidentally, also knew my late wife. They come from the same region. Me, I married from Kenya. There was this issue of this tribe should not marry this tribe at that stage. Nowadays, it's more uh, common and people intermarry and stuff. So there was that. And it was basically political, but it got ingrained in many people's psyche that certain tribes should not intermarry due to political competition. But then I I went against the grain and my dad had told me human beings are equal. So it doesn't matter where your friends come from. But uh, just to go back to your question, this guy, when he came and wrote that statement, he came to court and said, I was told to do X, Y, Z. I was taken to the cell where Pete was before I wrote this statement. So he didn't even know who he was talking about. He was brought to the police cell. He was shot this guy. After that, he went and wrote the statement. These are stuff that's in his official statement to the police and evidence in court. But at that point, no one wanted to do the right thing. The judicial system was totally corrupt. Judges were taking bribes left, right, and center. Some judges were even giving the litigants, as long as they were paid, you write the judgment, bring it for me to sign. And that was one of the causes that Kenya had a total overhaul of the judiciary in 2003, because it was rotten to the core. So the judges were the richest guys in town, I guess, right? I don't know what they were doing with the money. I think they were drinking it off and just running around with pretty people, maybe. I don't know. But the thing is, my judge was one of the first to be sucked for corruption. You really hit the, the reverse jackpot in terms of you know, getting a judge and then the, an appellate judge as well, both of whom were proven later and, and fired for being totally corrupt. Yeah. Back to the story. So you go to trial in July. Yeah. Now, let me just remember. So you've now been behind bars for? That's the seventh month now when the trial starts. Mine was pretty fast because back then you could start a trial after two years. 
Kenya, there was a big backlog. Judges didn't want to do cases. But thank God to my lawyer, George, he was very, very persistent. And he really pushed to have everything done because he didn't see the reason why he should be in prison. So this guy comes to court. He says he saw Jennifer being walked away by this guy who's supposed to be me. Then he forgets at the same time Jennifer had a client at the very time he's talking about. Jenny was with a client in the salon, and that's why she stayed late until nine. Right. So this client comes to court and says, the very time this guy says that Jenny was picked, I was actually with Jenny in the salon. No one came to pick Jenny. I left at nine. No one, I didn't meet anyone in the stairs. And there's no one, I don't know this guy. This guy didn't come to pick Jenny. So he's now been proven to be a liar. He was a liar from the word go. Yeah. So how many people were on the jury? Three. So the jury are listening to the very stuff that we're talking about now, right? This yeah. unraveling of the government's case. Yeah. And they saw through all of it. It was so transparent that it's it's actually ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'll just let you know that they were so bewildered that there are times they stopped the trial to ask questions to the witnesses directly. Because it was just not making sense to them. And because the law allowed them to ask questions, when the judge noticed that they were asking questions that were beneficial to me, he would stop them. And that's when we suspected something was amiss. But we, we believe that since I was innocent, we had nothing to lose. We had nothing to fear. I grew up trusting in systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. That's what my dad taught me. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I said, if someone wants to charge me, I need to clear my name the right way. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty strong statement. Back to the trial. So how long did the trial last? The trial lasted the first year, and then we had to take a break because two of the jury members were taken out to go do something somewhere. Wait, you said it lasted... The first year, and then the second year, because it take, it ended in 2001. Wait, but how long, like how many days or weeks or months did the trial No, you, you'd have a trial two days in a week, then you're given a, an adjournment for another three months. You come back, you have three days, you're given another adjournment for six months. I mean, it's nothing like you have one week of trial and the decision is made. So that's an interesting system because that gives everybody just enough time to forget everything that they just heard. Exactly. Saw. That, that's so ridiculous. Like, why? It doesn't make... I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be critical because I know just how backwards our system is in so many ways. But that seems completely crazy. Why wouldn't you have a trial that is contiguous? Is there any rationale for that? I mean, hardworking judges, conscientious judges insist on having trials started and completed at the best time. But I wasn't dealing with a conscientious judge. Just like I've said, so he, he had his own agenda. Okay, now I understand when you said the trial lasted a year or two years, I'm thinking you're going every day to court. That no, 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 no. You go for a day or two, adjournment for one reason or another. The next day, you're given another three months to wait. You go back to prison. You just hang out there. You come back again. Maybe the witnesses are not there. You're right. told to go back home. That's another thing. Like, even the jurors. What, what if, I mean, this is so crazy for them, too, because what if they go away or somebody moves and then you haven't... Yeah. But it was the same jurors throughout the whole yeah, trial. Yeah, it was the same jurors. I mean, there were people who are... I just looked at them and felt these guys could do justice because they had no emotions. They were just stand-faced. So, but they were listening through every single thing. So the trial takes... Forever. Two years, which was very fast by Kenyan standards at that time. 
Two years. Wow. Trials were going for five years, six years. Oh my God. Um, the trial takes, in your case, two years, which is an, an eternity when you're in the situation you're in. Having lost your wife, you had to be super worried about your kids. Very. Um, I mean, they're having a normal upbringing, happy family. Next thing you know, mom's been murdered, and then dad's gone. And then everyone's probably talking to them, saying horrible things about you. I mean, it's a miracle that they're doing well today. Knock wood. More power to them because that's it's absolutely unimaginable what they went through. So the trial winds down. The jury, do they go out to a room to deliberate? Yeah, like they, they go do out here? to deliberate and they come out to give their decision. How long did that take? They took a day. And what did they say? And they say every one of them has to give their own reasons. They had the lead juror, but all of them were asked to give their individual reasons by the judge. So they stand up. The first one says they've uh, looked at the case. They've realized no investigations was done. There was a blind focus on getting a conviction. And I'm innocent. And the second one? Second one, same story. No investigations were done by the police. In fact, what came out very clearly in all their assessment was that there was no investigation that had been done. There was a blind focus. A decision had been made, predetermined decision, that this guy had to go to prison. So they looked through the evidence. They asked, I mean, they were bewildered. They said, the police lines are guarded. Something like this cannot happen at a police station. And if at all it happened, then the police could have arrested those people at that time or that person at that time. The crazy thing is that I was charged. My charge sheet reads, pit with others not before the court committed the offense. And I took that as insult because my wife has been raped and murdered. And you told me I took people to go rape my wife outside a cop station. You know, that was the biggest insult to me. But I just said, I, I, I have to look through this. I mean, I could have gone crazy at that point. I could have gone very mad at that point. But I realized that I, was fi I, I had a system that was so rigged, pre-rigged to make people suffer injustices. So I just prayed and asked God, give me the strength to go through this. So I didn't even realize that until now. They claimed that you brought other people with you. Yeah, they said, I, I was charged. The charge sheet reads Pete with others not before the court. Right, I get it. With others not before the court. It's, yeah. uh, you would be the only person who's ever done that in the history of the world if that was the case. Yeah, but with their own wife to be raped and murdered by you and, and, others. and others, whoever mm -hmm. those others were, which were unnamed, because yeah. of course they were imaginary. Yeah. You all had the same great idea to bring her to the police station. Right, total madness. So the jurors... And this is where it's supposed to end, right? This is where you're supposed to go home and yeah, try to I mean, rebuild your life. Yeah, the jurors make their decision, and I say, you know, I'd sat down, and I'd seen the drama that was going on, and I said, because the jurors speak for the public, whatever decision they'll make, I'll live with it. So to me, my trial ended the day the jurors stood up and said, you are innocent, all of them, unanimously. That is when I felt I'm vindicated. Anything that happened after that didn't matter to me. But did you have you had no indication that anything else could happen? I mean, did you have any idea? At that, that point, I expected the judge to do the right thing. And then he told me to come for my judgment. On the day of the judgment, he didn't read the judgment. He asked for two more weeks. I come back again. He postpones it again for the second time. And that was a process. If a judge wanted to be bribed, he would always push your judgment forward so that you go bribe him before he releases you. And I wasn't going to do that. I told my family, I told my friends, I don't have any money. We've used our money in the legal briefs, but we are not going to bribe anyone. No one should bribe anyone for this. 
But the problem was, even if you had bribed him, he was being bribed already by the other side. Yeah, by the other side. He could have taken from both sides. It would have been just the highest bidder, right? It's really, it's almost like a justice auction. Yeah, I mean, back then it was a justice auction. Kenya has gone through a very tough moment. Thanks to the new president, President Kibaki in 2003, the justice system had a complete overhaul. They had to turn everything upside down. In a good way. In a good way, in a positive way. Good. And we had to start fighting these things in prison. The good thing is that the judge who came up in 2010 in the new constitution had been detained by the former government that convicted me. He had been detained in prison in the same prison I was in on political reasons. So he knew what people are going through in prison. And he used to tell us, Pete and my colleagues, just write petitions, litigate, and bring them to court. We'll make a decision. Let's get to the verdict. So finally, after weeks of delays and delays and more delays, and presumably more payoffs and bribes, and him waiting to see if your family's going to come up with even more money or whatever, uh, you finally are brought back to court for the decision, which again, it would seem like, at least in our justice system, I think in most of the world, there is no decision left to be made because the judge doesn't get to overrule the jury. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So you come back. Finally, this ordeal is presumably coming to an end, but actually it was just beginning. Yeah, it was just beginning because, okay, the judge makes the final decision, but the law in Kenya says the case law that had been established stated that in the event he goes against the decision of the jury, he's supposed to give reasons. He's supposed to say, I don't agree with them because of one, two, three. In this case, there was nothing. Instead, he wrote into his judgment things that, that were not even mentioned in court. So he was actually the, not only the, the judge in this case, he was also playing the prosecutor. He was playing the prosecutor, and he has a prosecutorial past, by the way. He was a prosecutor before he was appointed judge. A lot of, and a he lot was of a prosecutor are... in one of the darkest moments of Kenya's history. Okay, so you come back, he starts reading off all these supposedly new information, yeah. or n- new lies, new fairy tales, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. 
And then he says you're guilty. Yeah, he says you're guilty. Uh, you're sentenced to death by hanging until certified dead by a medical doctor. Wow. And so George is sitting down there. I'm sitting on a raised platform there. Our courts are not like yours. They're more British. So the suspects or the accused person sit on a higher pedestal yes. in the dock, and the witnesses sit on the other side, and the lawyers sit down there. So George looks back at me, George, my lawyer, and I look at George, and instead of crying, we laughed at the absurdity of it all. Wow. We were so disgusted, we just laughed. We that- couldn't believe what we were hearing him read. But my family, everyone broke down. We were not laughing because we were happy. We were laughing because we were disgusted. You're so mad that the only thing you can do is laugh. You know, that's the only way you can placate yourself. And then my mom was there. She had believed in the justice system. She was totally broken. My mom hasn't recovered up to now. 20 years later, she's yet to recover from that. She's yet to recover from the betrayal of 2001, which is 17 years ago. And... My mom broke down, my siblings, people just got confused because they'd never had the death sentence pronounced. And then they thought maybe that I'm going to be hanged the next day. And the media is all there. They're all chasing this juicy story. He had called them. The, the circus judge had already called them to be there, all of them. So they're all fo- fo- following up on this juicy story. They want to take pics. And I said one thing. I don't want to see my kids in my kids to see me in handcuffs. I always believed I was going to see my kids, even though he had mentioned that I was supposed to be killed. I said one thing: I'll not allow my kids to see me in handcuffs. Any picture of mine to, for my kids to see me in handcuffs. So the media was out there. We leave the courtroom. George just tells me, "Take heart, we are going to appeal immediately." And so as we are leaving the courtroom, the media has been told to stand on one side. They are waiting to take pictures, and just by intuition. Because I had my family and friends, I just tell them, walk beside me. And as we get out of the court, they block off the media. I walk on the other side, the media is on the other side, trying to break through to come take photos of me. And then me, I walk down very fast to go to the cells, and that was it. I'm taken to prison, not to the same prison I'd spent the previous night in, because I came to court ready to go home. I'm now taken to the maximum security prison. And what was that like? It was crazy because the transport first would tell you that things were not the same. We'll never be the same again. We had trucks. We didn't have buses as we do have in Kenya now. So these trucks had two compartments at the rear and two small benches, wooden benches. And the small truck would carry more than 100 inmates. So you were packed. You had to stand. For a tall person like me, I had to bend. And, and you're standing in this truck with 100 other people plus the warders in that truck, and uh, you just pray that you reach wherever you're going because there are small holes at the top that are supposed to bring ventilation, ventilation holes. There are no windows. It's just a, a metal cage. It's like a cage. Let me use the word, a cage. And so the journey is long. We arrive at the prison, the maximum security prison at night, around 8 o'clock. So who's this uh, person who's been brought in? I'm meeting new people for the first time. All the cops want to know about my case. Everyone is asking many questions, which I'm not answering, of course, because I'd learned how to live with people by that time. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. And I I just didn't want to start talking to anyone I didn't know while they were asking me questions. So I was processed through the system, then taken uh, to the cells. And that cell block, you had your own cell? No. 
I was sharing that cell, the eight by seven foot cell with 13 other guys. What? Eight by seven foot cell with 13 other guys. Yeah, and I'm six four. Yes, you are. You're not a, you're not a small guy. <laughs> <laughs> Larger than life character in many, many ways. So there's 13 other guys. So you, you I mean, could you even lie down in there? How you can't you? lie down. You sit down around in a corner. I mean, you just have to agree on yourself. One thing I loved about prison is that inmates really agree on things as a unit in Kenya. You have no choice. We have no choice. So we say if we get in with our shoes or with our slippers, we could easily get sick because there was no water, so to speak. There was no running water at that time. And food was not guaranteed at that time because even the jailer at that time was very corrupt. And he was always ensuring that we had a meal one or the other day into alternating days so that in between he would know what to do with it. But when we went to prison at that time, we agreed, okay, we are many in the small cell. So you leave your slippers outside, you get in, you put them back to back. Then we had made somewhere to hook them so that you don't get diseases in the cell. We had a bucket toilet that had to be hung on the door because there was no space to put it down there. And we slept side by side. There was no blankets. Back then, 1998 to 2001, there were no blankets in our prisons. So if you managed to get a small piece to cover yourself, fine. But it was so hot in there because you're 13 grown-up men in a small cell, or 14 in that case, and then it's so hot. I mean, the next guy is literally on your skin. We had lots of skin diseases. Luckily, I never got sick for the 18 years I was in prison. It's a miracle. It's so a you miracle. would so you would sleep basically like sorry. I mean on my side I had I had marks on my side here. You know, on my hip, because you sleep on this hip, it's not a carpeted floor, it's a terrazzo floor. The guys on this side you all face right, the guys on the other side face left. So when you want to turn, you have to agree on what time to turn so that the other guys go on the other side, you guys turn to the other side. Right, so literally like sardines, and you have to turn at the same time, which yeah. is, and by then you have cramps. It's got to be you insane. have cramps, but after two weeks you get used to it, and your body becomes immune and mute, and you just go with the motions. You you become robotic, and you would be allowed out of the cell uh, thirty minutes in a day. Thirty minutes in a day, yeah, if at all, and that's only Monday to Friday. But from Saturday and Sunday, aha, uh-huh. no, nothing, nothing. Nothing. Unless you had a visitor, then you'd go out. So it was a privilege. Actually, when I came home, there's a day I just stood out some and saw the sunset for the first time in, in uh, 18 years. And I just stood and watched the sun go down. I was like, this is what I was denied for so long. Something I never saw in prison. I never got to see the sunset for 18 years. Right, because you were locked you always up in walked in. by 6 o'clock. Yeah. And so how the hell did you maintain your sanity. I mean, there must be guys in there literally losing their mind because, I mean, how can you put people that close together and so hot and so uncomfortable physically and no room to move and no room to do anything? You have, did you have any books in there or anything else? Yeah, I could get books. Newspapers were illegal, were, were prohibited at that time. Later on, they were allowed. But uh, initially, I, I loved reading and I'm a man of faith, so I really kept to the faith and and. The, the good thing with people who were in the faith, you'd be allowed sometimes to go out more than once. So you'd go 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon. And many people actually came to the faith just because he wanted that opportunity. But I just learned how to keep my head underwater, not to stick out, not to ruffle feathers, but not also to walk on with anything. I mean, I became a voice to many of my colleagues in prison. 
they appointed me as one of their leaders. So I would speak out. We said we are going. I, I told the officer in charge, the, the warden in charge, we want to do things differently. We're not going to be confrontational because we are going to write memoranda. If we have an issue, we want to write a memoranda, call us the people involved, and then we face it with them. So we started writing memoranda about congestion, about torture, about every other thing that you could imagine there. We brought issues because we realized that the government was giving enough money for our food, which food we were not getting. So we said it's not the problem of the government, it's an institutional problem. So we demanded for what was rightfully ours. Luckily, by that time, the new president had come in. The prisons department had moved from punishment to correction and rehabilitation. I mean, you're a big guy. You're much bigger than an average person. So getting so little nourishment in there, did you lose a ton of weight? No, I, I think I, I could have lost some weight, but I always believe it's all in the mind. I learn to appreciate whatever I have. I, I, I don't go for the big things in life. I just try to live within my jacket and just appreciate every little thing I get. I'm very appreciative, by the way, and I work within that budget. The good thing is that by doing that, I don't stress myself out like I can't get this and this and that. I just live and appreciate whatever it is. And contrary to what you might think, I don't eat much. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, that's a good thing for that, too. So were you in that same prison for 18 years? No. After one month, I was taken to another security prison in a place called Naivasha. Now, that's the biggest prison in the country. In fact, I think in East Africa. It's massive. It's, it's got a football field inside it. But that's, that's one prison that's feared by many people. Because the wind blows from the Rift Valley into the prison. And so if you don't have anything to cover, you'd get cold, you'd get tuberculosis. And if someone visits you the first time, they wouldn't want to come the second time. Because it was so far removed from, uh, from the road from the transport network. So it's, it's one of the most feared prisons back then. But now it has the biggest school population of all prisons in Africa. So they're educating the inmates. Yeah, it's, is... become, it's become a model institution. The hmm. new reforms that were brought by the Kenya Prison Service, they first accepted, they had made mistakes. They had a paradigm shift. And we thank the former vice president who was made in charge of the prison's docket. Prisons in Kenya are public institutions. So he said he wanted to see prisoners treated humanely. We started having that chance, and that's how we started now getting more hours out in the sun. Torture became outlawed, and uh, inmates had a chance to go to school, learn skills, get visitors. We have an open-door policy in our prisons in Kenya, and we could manage all that. I learned art in prison. I started training my colleagues in art. I formed the organization I run now while I was on death row. And we started doing activities outside prison, but organizing from prison. And people thought that we were so well-funded. I didn't have any money. What I did was design T-shirts, design cards, sell them to my fellow inmates, sell them to the other guys out there, use those proceeds to run the crimes awareness campaigns that we were doing outside. And I just thank God because there was so much ownership of the process that being in prison now didn't become a burden. It became a, an opportunity to reinvent myself and to find myself. I forgave the people who took me there. I removed all the bitterness and said, I have to live my life. And if that's the purpose I have, and since I believe I'll go home at one point every single day, I believed I was going to go home, then I had to start doing things differently. Wow. That's, uh, that's just, um, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's, uh, it's so remarkable that yeah. you uh, exist in this state of, of the only way I can describe it is grace. I've never heard anybody describe it quite the way you just did, but it's uh, it's always so remarkable for me just to be 
in the presence of somebody like you who has found this, uh, you know, what I guess you could call it the meaning of life, which allowed you to survive, really, because otherwise you probably would have died in there. I, mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, in prison, you have, number one, you have to let go. You have to let go of all bitterness. You have to let go of assuming that life is the same. And you just adjust and recalibrate through that life. You don't become part of that life. It's there, but you, you live your life in that situation so that it doesn't get really into you and you feel like uh, it's a punishment. You get to learn to coexist with your fellow people. I mean, it's like a United Nations. You're meeting all kinds of people. I met some very wonderful people in prison. It's not just about the struggles of Pete being in prison wrongfully convicted. People are going through worse out here. There are worse prisons out here than what we go through in prison. People are addicted and closed down to drugs. They're in their own world. They can't come out of that. My prayer always when I work with the youth to get them out of crimes and drugs is that they just find purpose wherever they are. So that's what I started doing in prison. You wouldn't believe this, Jason, but when we were on death row, when we were getting that small amount of food, we mobilized all the 52,000 inmates in Kenya to forgo their meals and to donate to people in Kenya who are dying of hunger. Wow. And people are like, are you guys doing this so that you can be released? And we said, no, we are eating food in prison and we're not working. We're just sleeping. We eat and sleep. So why can't we just do something different? And we came together as inmates. And I was taken from prison. That's the first time I got out to walk in the streets of Nairobi without handcuffs. And I was taken to the office of the vice president. I made the donation on behalf of uh, my colleagues. And from there, we just felt we had to grow. So the different programs that were brought, the leadership of the Kenya Prison Service helped us change that. The judiciary was revamped. The corrupt guys were taken out. We started seeing changes. And now we were using the law now to help overturn most of these things. I was writing appeals and petitions for my colleagues in prison. Last year, the year before I left, that was 2016, I got six guys out of death row. And I hadn't even cleared my law degree. You know, but that was just things we learned how to write those things. After so many years, you just learn naturally to do some of this stuff. Look at the evidence, look at the case law, make your presentations in court. It's crazy enough, some of the cases I've used in my pleadings were influenced by what the Innocence Project is doing in America. I've always been a great fan of the Innocence Project. They intend to set up something similar in my country. You studied the law. Well, you got your college degree in prison, and then you studied the law. And now you're about to graduate from the University of London Law School, yeah. which is a part of the story that we have to get to. But before that, how did you get released? Oh, in 2016, August, my son was going to graduate. They were clearing the university. And one thing that had really killed my mood in prison was that I was not able to be there for my kids' primary school graduation, high school graduation, and now they had their final graduation in university. And I felt that if I was not going to attend that, then I had no business getting out of prison. It came to that. That's when I was depressed. Just to feel that my kids had grown without me, they'd not seen me, they had had visits from other families, they'd seen other kids being visited and they, are not, they couldn't have their dad there. They couldn't tell their colleagues in school that their dad is in prison for allegedly murdering their mom. I mean, I felt that those kids deserved me to be there with them for their graduation. So I took a leap of faith and wrote to the president of the country, President Kenyatta, and told him, Your Excellency, I was charged with this offense of murder. I still maintain my innocence. I don't agree with the decision, but as a law-abiding citizen, I respect it. And so the position is that my son, my kids are going to graduate and I need to be home with them for their graduation. So could you use your prerogative to set me free? And, and you uh, did. 
hit it in October. How did you get the news? Uh, I was assisting, like in prison, I was always in the documentation office, helping type appeals and process the appeals for the inmates. And then there was this breaking news. So one of the wardens in the office said, Pete, something has happened. Guys are being released. I mean, the president has just signed an order releasing guys. And we know you must be in there. And then I was like, people have been released before, but uh, I've never been there. I mean, every other year people would tell me, Pete, you're going home. You don't deserve to be here. But it never happened. But I just felt in my spirit at that time, like the time has come. So I left uh, the documentation office and went to my cell. By the time I was leaving, I was living in my own cell, though it didn't have a, a toilet, but it was a different block. We were only 11 of us in that cell. It's a privilege I was given by the officer in charge. So I went down to my cell and just prayed and told God, if it's your will, let it be done. And I just hung on there. Then an hour later, the Commissioner General of Prisons drives in with the power of mercy staff and with his team. So I'm told, Pete, you're being called outside. So on walking out, the commissioner tells me, you know what? You wrote a letter to the president and he said you can go home. And, and he's such an amiable person. He talks like it's just a joke. So first I'm like, ah, but when I look at the team he's has with, then I have reason to believe. After that, we were called to the hall, then the names were read out. And when we were just about to leave, I called my daughter. I went to the office and called my daughter. I told her, Whitney, I'm going home. I'm coming home. And she was like, Dad, you always like cracking jokes. I mean, I don't trust what you're telling me. So let someone else tell me. So I give the cops uh, the phone and tell them, tell this girl I've been released. And she says, no, I'll only believe when I see you. That's how stubborn my daughter is. And then she, she goes like, okay, Dad, if I see you, then I'll believe. But I'm not telling anyone. And then the prison warden tells us, Pete and our colleagues, you know, this is late in the evening. It's raining heavily. We'd like this thing to be covered by the media. So would you guys just mind spending an extra night in prison? Then you go in the morning if you will, because it's for our sake that we don't know if we'll see you guys again. And uh, we just wanted this story to come out. So we indulge them and we go and sleep. And uh, So you spent an extra night in prison after yeah, I spent an years. extra night the, the, after, after release. Uh, did you sleep though? No, I slept. I slept very deeply. I was just thankful. I listened to a lot of music. I slept late. I slept at around three. I just listened to lots of music because I had my laptop for studies in my room. And then uh, I went to bed at around 3 a.m. So I woke up late. The other guys, I think they didn't believe because they woke up at 6. By 6, they were in the office like, we want to go home now. You know, so even just the moment the doors were open, they were out of the documentation office asking to go home. And so my mom came in. My mom came in with those one of the pictures I look at, and she just hugged me and broke down. And I didn't know how to handle my mom crying. I mean, it was it was deep. Then she started singing, thanking God, crying, just on my chest. And I was just trying to reassure mom that also, okay, it's all over. But she still had this heavy heart, like, why did it have to happen? For 18 years, she lost her good health because of that depression. And as we're speaking right now, yeah, she's struggling with her health, but thank God she's strong. So then they take you and your mom and they put it to Yeah, then we pass through the office of the African Prisons Project just to say hi. And then after that, we go over to my sister's place, who had come with my mom. And uh, now my daughter still doesn't come. She still doesn't believe that I've been released. 
and I've called both my daughter and my son. So as I'm leaving, because I had to take a detour and we used a long route because of traffic, it was around three o'clock. I call a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine and a mentor of mine, and I tell him, uh, Carol, you know what? Uh, I've been looking for you, but I don't know where to find you. So I mean, no, I was looking for your son because your son was supposed to go for an interview and I can't trace him. So I tell him, oh, I'll tell him. I'm going to meet him, then I'll tell him. Then he asked me, where are you at? I said, I'm home. Like, come on, stop kidding me. Because people think, when, when I was in prison, I liked cracking jokes just to keep people's moods on the app. So he thinks it's another wild joke again. So he invites me to his office. Nice, nice uh, catch-up. He's a childhood friend. After that, we go to my sister's place. Then by that time, my daughter started believing because now she's getting calls from different people. And she joins me at my sister's place where my son was staying. My sister is my hero, Christine. She took good care of those kids for a while, for more than eight years, you know, through high school, teenage stuff. And she just took good care of them. And she's a sickling. She doesn't have the best of health. But she took them in like her own and really saw them through what they were going through. What was it like when you saw your kids for the first time in 18 years on, as a free man? I mean, did you beat them both together at the same time? How no, you know, I wasn't seeing them for the first time. In the prisons in Kenya, uh, when the laws were changed, we agitated for a law to be enacted called the Persons Deprived of Liberty Act. And in that act, we have parental visits. Yeah. So four times in a year, by law, Parents and visitors and friends can just come and hang out the way. You know, you just hang out. You bring food from home. You sit. You make food from home. You come and sit down with the family and just have a quality time. And uh, other than that, you can also apply on special days. Like when my daughter came to introduce her then boyfriend, she told me that I, I want to introduce someone to you. And I asked for permission from the officer in charge. We were given a room. We just hung out. So I'd already seen them from the time they were uh, after the first eight years when they had been told that I was dead, I didn't tell you that. They grew up knowing that I was dead for the first eight years. Their identity had been changed. So when I met my daughter for the first time, I couldn't recognize after eight years. And then uh, when they went to first from ninth grade, now I started seeing them. They could come to prison and see me. Wait, so they grew up thinking you were dead? They were told I was dead. Wow. By who? By the very people who said I should be locked in. Mm, the in-laws. Wow. Yeah, um, but the good thing, I thank my mom-in-law because she's the one who told me, Pete, I'm sorry, but I told your kids that you're dead. And I told her, Mom, I have nothing against you. I love you just like my mom and I'll always love you. Whatever you did, I don't know why you did it. I have nothing against you. And we just have to live the life God has allowed us to live. Amazing. So I do want to talk about the African Prisons Project. Yeah. Um, I was very... Um, honored and humbled to be asked by the founder of the African Prisons Project, Alexander McLean, to come over to Uganda and give a TEDx talk inside a maximum security prison in Kampala. And of course, it was during that trip that you and I uh, met. So can you share with our listeners what the African Prison Project is and what it does and how you're involved in it? Oh, yeah. The African Prisons Project was started 10 years ago by Alexander. I met Alexander when I was in prison. And just about that time, I'd been invited by the Judicial Service Commission to go give my views on, uh, on behalf of the inmates about revamping the judicial system. And so when I went to that interview, I met all the top players in the criminal justice system. And the attorney general then asked me, are you a lawyer? Then I told him, no, I'm not a lawyer. They told me, would you like to study law? 
I told him, yeah, if you pay for me, sir, I'll gladly study. They said, Pete, we know what you have in you and we know what your motivation is to study. So we are going to help you. You're going to pay half of your fees. And Alexander said, fine. As at African Prisons Project, we don't have a budget for education right now. We are not doing legal education. But if you have someone to pay for you half, I'll gladly pay for you the other half. That's how we started off in 2012. I went to university through the African Prisons Project. In 2013, I had to be taken from prison to go do my exams outside at the British Council, which was a great honor. Then uh, the officer in charge asked me, Pete, why are you doing this thing alone? And there's so many people who are suffering and who need uh, that help. And I got in touch with Alexander and told him, come on, could you try and get uh, more guys to be supported in this course? And later on, uh, more people joined the program. And the inmates are being trained to be change makers. They're doing that in three prisons. Two, they're being trained in law. In Kenya, three prisons. In Uganda, I think uh, it's Luzira. And they're being trained in law uh, and paralegal uh, staff to assist their fellow inmates. And also when they go out to assist the indolent in society. So that's a project that goes there. After that, after my first year, I, of course, I graduated. And after the first year, Alexander African Prisons Project started paying for my fees at uh, the University of London. And the money, because my gracious guests, uh, hosts or supporters, Justice Isaac, was still giving me $400 per year, I used that to pay for my children's school fees. And that's how my children went through school. Amazing. Because I'd exhausted all my funds at my trail. I mean, so so uh, Justice is like Naola, Isaac, and, uh, and uh, Ahmed Nasir, and Alexander helped get me on my feet to what I'm about to complete right now. So Al- Alexander McLean is a hero of mine. Um, I'm a big supporter of his work, uh, proudly. And he has been going for a long time now into uh, some of the most um, hopeless places on earth. Some of the prisons in Kenya and Uganda and I think other parts of Africa and training people like Pete, who's sitting in front of me now, in the law so that they can do exactly what you did, which is find a way to get yourself out and then in the process help other inmates. So, Pete, this story is absolutely remarkable. The tradition here is that at the end of each episode, I like to just turn the mic over to the guest, in this case you, to share any further thoughts that you have with our audience. Oh, thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me to New York. It's it's a great pleasure. I didn't know I would even get a visa to come here, but I'm grateful that it happened and I'm here. I've met wonderful people. I enjoyed being with the Felix and Ruiz at the gala. I just want to thank the Innocence Project. I thank you and all the support you guys are giving to that project. It's something I also want to replicate in my country. I left the African Prisons Project and now I'm focused on my organization called the Youth Safety Aware Initiative. We're focusing on getting the youth out of crime. We are focused on getting inmates who are leaving prison to have something gainful to do. And as I'm speaking to you right now, we've assisted 15 of our inmates open bank accounts. So we're doing social enterprises as a means of uh, reducing recidivism. I had a double treat on 28th of April. The same day I was granted a visa, I also got a call from one of the biggest landowners in our country, Kenya, and we are going to put a re-entry home there. Funds allowing, we are going to put the first halfway home in a big conservancy where you can also watch game. 
That's amazing. And the name of the organization again? Youth Safety Awareness Initiative. And how can people learn more and get involved? Uh, you can go to www.crimecpoa, crime C-P-O-A, C-R-I-M-E-S-I-P-O-A. Crime C-P-O-A means crime is not cool. So we used a local slang to reach out to the youth. That's okay. what we started doing in prison. And uh, when we got it registered, they said they cannot register the name crime as an NGO. So we got Youth Safety Awareness Initiative. But the brand name, which is registered brand name now, is Crime Sipo. Crime is not cool. Okay, so the organization is Youth Safety Awareness Initiative. Yeah. Go and visit and learn about this amazing work of this amazing man uh, who's sitting here in front of me now. Uh, which is a miracle in and of itself, yeah. and join me in supporting this work because this is, in fact, a global problem. We, we focus a lot on America, on wrongful conviction, but it's a global problem, and there's so many people who need our help. So I want to thank you, Pete Uko, for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and your amazing journey with our audience. Thank you, Jason, for hosting me. It's a pleasure. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.